Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. Written on three continents, it's 66 separate books, 66 separate books. Um, It's a library, it's more than a book, it's a library, it's 66 books, but it's a story. There's one continuous story. And this is sort of how we summarize the story, we'll put it on the screen, but it's in sort of three parts, creation and commission, rebellion and redemption, and then recreation and commission again. This is the story of the Bible. Creation, commission, we saw that last week. Rebellion, redemption, we'll introduce that idea tonight. And then recreation and commission. Now we began by meeting the characters. Um, Last week we met God and man. Were you guys here last week? If you weren't, we met God and man. We looked at one verse. In the beginning, God, we're introduced to God, created the heavens and the earth, and we talked about that idea. And tonight, we're going to sort of meet the supporting cast in the spiritual realm, and specifically, we're going to talk about the antagonist. That's what we're talking about tonight. We're meeting characters. We met God. um, We met man. And now tonight, we're going to meet the antagonist. Now, before we need to jump, before we jump in, we need to understand that there is a spiritual reality, invisible, but real. Now, when you're a child, you have to learn that just because someone isn't in the room doesn't mean they cease to exist. Right? This is part of child development is they learn because when they're infants, when they're first born, that when, when somebody isn't in the room, when they can't see them, when they can't touch them, when they can't experience them, their brain doesn't know how to under, uh, like wrap their mind around uh, invisible realities. But as they develop, as they grow, they understand that just because mom's not in the room doesn't mean mom doesn't exist. Does that make sense? And so you sort of learn that. It's part of life. It's part of development. So we understand that, right? We understand invisible realities to an extent, right? Like we get Wi-Fi. I mean, we don't get it. I mean, Ty and Matthew will debate all night long about what it is. But we understand it's invisible. We can't see like, oh, there's the Wi-Fi. And yet we use it, right? The same is true of the wind. We understand the wind. We don't see it but it's real and we can see the effects of it. Is that making sense? And so our brain is a a tune of invisible realities. And so one of the things when we talk about God, we have to at least begin with this concept of an invisible reality because we worship an invisible God, right? We just sang about Jesus. We talked about you're holy and yet he's not in the room physically. We can't see him like, okay, we're gonna put him up on the stage and we're gonna sing you're holy. Everyone's like, yep, there he is. We can see how holy he is. We understand invisible realities. And so when we're talking about an invisible God and we're talking about life and his kingdom and relationship with him and and, and what he's doing in our heart, we have to begin with this spiritual reality, invisible but real. Now, in the spiritual reality, there is good and evil. There is creator God who calls all of his creation good. He is love. He created you. He knows you. He has a plan for you. And all that he has made that is good, we still experience in our lives, right? We experience still today God's good on the earth. We experience it physically, right? We can go places. We talked about this last week, but whether it's through creation or an experience, we, we can see God's good on the earth. And then we also experience it through his attributes like love and friendship 
and generosity and truth and even his physical good creation. God is creator. He calls his creation good. He is love. He created you. He knows you. All of his plans for you are good to give you a hope and a future. This is who God is. But there's also an enemy to God and his good creation, right? Just like there's an invisible God that's good, that has a plan for your life, there's also an invisible enemy that is not good. He's evil, and he hates God. And if you're a follower of God, he hates you as well. And just like the Wi-Fi or the wind, it isn't seen, but we know that it's there. There's a famous line in the movie, it's called Usual Suspects, which I haven't seen and none of us probably have seen, but, because it came out a long time ago, but there's a famous line that says this, quote, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was, was convincing the world he doesn't exist. You know, it's interesting, even when I was preparing for this message, I was sort of swirling in my mind whether or not I even wanted to talk about this stuff. There's a part of me that's like, people are going to look at me like, this guy is nuts. And I'm going to tell you, as we kind of walk through some of the biblical language and things like that, you, you might be like, this guy is a little out there. And part of that thinking, I think, comes from that statement, right, where we are okay with a physical reality, And we're okay with physical good and physical evil that we can see, explain, and understand. But when it comes to a source of evil, when it comes from evil in a deeper sense, we sort of like shudder a little bit and stay away from it. And it's that same idea. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Now we meet this character in Genesis chapter 3. So that's where we're going to be. Genesis 3. We're only going to read one verse tonight in Genesis 3. Shane next week is going to sort of unpack the second part of the rebellion. So we're only going to look at the first part. It says this, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, that's all we're going to look at in the middle of a question. The story introduces to more characters and raises some questions. Immediately, you should read this verse and you should ask questions. Okay, so if you're following along from the beginning, in the beginning, God was waiting. He was there from the beginning, before time, God exists. He spoke all things into existence. God, creator God, creates all things. And then we're told that he creates man, he creates woman, he places them in the Garden of Eden, and he gives them a commission, make the whole world Eden. Take God's good and establish the whole world on God's good. Now we're introduced to a serpent. And what's the strange thing about the serpent? That none of us have ever experienced when we've encountered a snake before. He's talking. Right away you should ask questions. Right? Hold on. Time out. Right? We're three chapters in and we've got talking snakes. Like, what book is this? What are we talking about? What is, what's going on? This should immediately. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, right? If you grew up in church, you're like, oh, yeah, it's a talking snake. Like, of course, everywhere. I don't know why you talk like that, but you do. Right? So, but we should read this with fresh eyes, with, with sort of adult thinking, and go, huh, there's a talking serpent. There's a talking snake. So a few questions we should ask. Who is this serpent? How does he speak, and why is he opposed to God and man? These are the three big questions we're going to answer tonight. 
Who is this serpent? How does he speak? And why is he opposed to God and man? Because again, when we're following the story, so far everything's been good and perfect and complete. No evil, no corruption, no bad, no wickedness, no nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in it he's called good, complete, perfect, harmony, beauty, love, all of this. God's good. Then Genesis 3 rolls around, and all of a sudden there's somebody that's opposed to God's good and and man's good. So let's talk about it. Now, the word serpent is the Hebrew word. I don't speak Hebrew, so my pronunciation is probably terrible. But it's nakash, N-A-C-H-A-S-H. Now, there's all sorts of uh, ideas surrounding the spelling. We won't get into that. But it's translated as serpent in our Bibles. But there are some indications that it could also be rendered as shining one or trickster from the original Hebrew. Okay, so that word, nakash, that we is translated serpent, because that's what that word nakash means. There is indications from the story and from other places that it could also be rendered as shining one. Okay? Everyone say shining one. Or trickster. Everyone say trickster. Think Loki from uh, Thor. Now, all three ideas give us insight into who this character is. And there's some evidences that make, make it that maybe he wasn't actually a serpent slithering around and talking. Uh, he probably appeared as something familiar to Eve in the garden. Now remember, the, the Garden of Eden was a, a touch point. It, it was a high place. It's the Garden of God or the Mountain of God. It's this idea where heaven and earth overlapped. Okay, we, like we live in a physical reality, and we believe that although we can't see it, there's an invisible reality, a spiritual reality. Eden was basically where those two realities intersected and overlapped. And we're told that God and man had frequent relationship with each other. They walked in the garden and spoke face to face and things like that. So there was, it was a touch point where the spiritual reality and the earthly reality intersected. And so it's very likely that when this character appears, it was something that was familiar. Are you tracking with me? Because we don't read of any fear or alarm or confusion from Eve when this serpent starts talking. He asks a question. She responds with an answer. There's no, there's no fear, there's no explanation. But, but although he, he could have uh, appeared as something else, we understand him as a serpent. And, and this picture continues throughout the Bible, this picture of a serpent. Right? We have language like a dragon, a sea dragon, and a serpent of old uh, that's talked about later on in the biblical story. You guys with me? I told you, you guys have your thinking caps on, right? Yeah, all right. Good job. Don't take them off. All right. I'm sorry. That's such a dumb joke. All right. Before we talk about um, the character, let's talk about the different biblical characters we see in the spiritual realm. Okay? So we're introduced to this, this serpent, and he's, he's in the garden. He's in the garden of God with man. He's talking to Eve. There's no, there's no uh, hesitation. There's just conversation. So what's going on? Who are the characters in the spiritual realm? So let's talk about the divine cast, all right? The divine cast. We are introduced to a few characters in the Bible. One is the word Elohim. Do we have yeah, Elohim? All right. Look at this. I'm, I need a laser pointer or something like that. Yeah, Elohim. Okay. Um, 
Elohim, we talked about this last week. Uh, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's the Hebrew word. It means God. He is the creator of all things. When we are introduced to Elohim in Genesis 1, he is the, the God of gods. He is the creator God. He is the only one that's eternal. There's only one eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent being. That is God. We, we meet him later with the name Yahweh. Okay, this is who uh, Elohim with a capital G, is Yahweh. But the Bible also mentions smaller Elohims or little G gods. So throughout your Bible, if you're reading, especially the Old Testament, you'll read that there are little G gods. It's not Yahweh. It's not the creator God. It's not the all-powerful. It is a little G God. Now, it's unfortunate that we, it uses the same word and that we use the same word because when we say the word God, we think of one idea, right? Like an omniscient, omnipresent supreme being but the bible uses this as a category title so we see little g gods as elohims or the sons of god is another idea for it but they are divine beings created by god with different roles and responsibilities all right so we meet elohim the second characters we meet in the bible are called seraphim and cherubim seraphim and cherubim if you've ever sang an old hymn you've probably said these words Seraphim and cherubim. Like that's an old hymn song. Like, yeah. Bowing down. Should I keep going? Before him. All right. That's, whew, all right. Um, they're described as winged beings, usually very large, scary, with faces like animals. Okay, I'll prove it to you. This is Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 14. It says this. Oh, do I have that verse? I don't think so. All right, I have it here. This is Ezekiel 10, verse 14. It says, each of the four cherubim had four faces. Each of the four cherubim had four faces. The first was the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third was a face of a lion. And the fourth was a face of an eagle. And in the verses prior to that, it talks about how they had like six wings. Okay, so massive creatures, four faces, different animals, Massive wings. You guys with me? Oh, yeah. Now, seraphim, so that's cherubim. We just, that's Ezekiel chapter 10. Um, seraphim are described in a similar way. They're only used one time in the Bible, seraphim. Cherubim is the more common word that we use or we see in the Bible. Seraphim, um, it, 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 it's a similar, they're described in a similar way, but the word is serap. S-A-R-A-P, that's the seraphim part, and it literally means serpent. Okay, so, whoa, that should make us go, oh, oh, serpent you say, right? Our thinking caps are on. So, oh, oh, okay. Now, the cherubim and the seraphim are, are told every time in the Bible, listen to me, this is important, when they're introduced in the Bible, they are ministers of God's holiness and purity. Okay, when, we, when, we, when the veil gets lifted, because there's moments throughout the biblical narrative where that veil between heaven and earth gets lifted, whether people are caught up in a vision or, or, or there's, a, there's a, a descent down, something happens, and every time you see the cherubim and seraphim, they're ministers of God's holiness and purity. Whenever we see them, they're either standing guards to God, 
So the first time we're introduced to these characters at the end of chapter 3, after man rebels against God, they're forced to exit the garden of God, then cherubim stand in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Right? These four-faced, six-winged, massive, divine beings stand guard to the presence of God. They're also, whenever we see them, they're standing around the throne room of God, singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. So they are ministers of God's purity and God's holiness. Okay, the next sort of characters in the divine cast, are you guys with me? Elohim, cherubim, seraphim, and then the third is angels, right? Angels, this is probably language we're more familiar with. Now, Angels is an untranslated word. Do you know what that means? Basically, we, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, actually, angels, a Greek word, that we just made it sound English, right? Like baptism is a, is a Greek word that we just made sound English. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that we just sort of made it sound English. It's not translated. The word angel comes from the Greek word angel, angelo, meaning messenger, it means messenger. The Hebrew word is the word malak, and it also means messenger. All right, so when you're reading in your Bible and you see the word angel, uh, the Hebrew word is malak. The Greek word is angelo. It probably doesn't pronounce like that. You know, it sounds like a name. Um, but it means messenger. And that was their primary job. Now, angels throughout the Bible look like people, unlike the cherubim where they have wings and faces and all this thing, angels look like people, often mistaken for humans, right? There's a Bible verse in the New Testament that says, like, be aware, you may entertain angels unknowingly, because they look like people. They're often mistaken as humans, and they're messengers, messengers for God. They, God sends them to bring the plan, his plans or a call or messages from him. These are the angel characters. Are you guys with me? Your thinking cap's still on? I am going somewhere. We're just meeting characters right now. Okay. <sighs> now, all of these beings make up the heavenly realm. So we have Yahweh, creator God. We've got Elohim's little G-gods. We've got seraphim and cherubim that are ministers uh, uh, of God around his throne. And then we have angels that are messengers sent to reveal God's plans or his wisdom to humanity. All of these make up the heavenly realm that are a part of God's creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, this is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created everything, but it's also an order of events. It's an order of events. God created the heavens, and then he created the earth. So, we've got questions. Who is the serpent? Why does he hate the plans of God? Now, although the Bible doesn't make the connection here in Genesis 3, we get later revelation about this character, and we're introduced to him by some other names that reveal that this serpent is the same character. Okay, so who or what is he? Ezekiel 28, I think we do have these verses. This is a, uh, a prophetic or poetic uh, vision about this serpent character. Listen to this. It says, Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. You were the, here we go. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden in the garden of God. Okay, we sh if we're reading this, that should perk our interest. Oh, you were there in Eden in the Garden of God. That's interesting. 
Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red uh, carnelian or whatever, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue-green beryl, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis, lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. So it says, okay, this character was there in the garden of God, beautifully adorned, beautifully created. It says they were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created, here we go, until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned, so I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor, so I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trades, so I brought, uh, brought fire out from within you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All, you knew who, all who knew you upon Paul, at your fate, you have come to a terrible end. You will exist no more. Okay. Whoa, okay, there's something interesting going on. You following me? I feel like I'm asking this because I know it's random. So I just need a little bit of help, okay? (sighs) Hannah's going to be like, Nate, it was a great message. And you kept asking them why, you just need to preach your message. That's what she tells me every week. All right. Um... Now notice in this, uh, a couple like clues should jump out at us as we read through this, right? You were there in the garden of God, beautifully ordained. And then it says, uh, you were, in verse 14, it says, I adorned you and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. This is the word cherubim. Now here we have a line drawn from the cherubim to the garden and sinning against God because of pride, violence, and sin. Okay, so we've got a a line drawn. Remember cherubim and seraphim, angels of God with faces of animals? Here we have a connection of one of those beings in the garden sinning against God. So we can assume that the serpent is probably a cherubim or seraphim. Um, Other context gives indication that he's possibly a son of God or an Elohim. Uh, In Job chapter 1, it says this, there was a day when the sons of God came. That's important, the sons of God, the Elohims, the little g-gods, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay, just giving you guys little bits of pieces of information. Now Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, gives us further insight into why he was against God. Okay, so we've met him, the serpent, slithering around. Who is he? Okay, well, there's connection that he's a, one of the angelic beings created by God. In fact, he was beautiful, one of the, the most glorious, it says. And yet he rebelled. He rejected the plans of God. Well, why did he reject the plans of God? Isaiah chapter 14 tells us this. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star. That phrase, shining star, is the Hebrew Lucifer. That's where we get that word. Son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. Listen, here's the key. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. 
and then it changes. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest steps. I love this verse. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Okay, so we have insight. Who is he? Well, there's connection to him being one of the divine creatures that God created, that he rebelled. Why did he rebel? Well, in here, it tells us that he wanted to be like God. In other words, he believed a lie. The lie was he could be like God. The lie was a created being by God could be like God. This is his origin. This is his fall. He is a created being by God in the spiritual realm, a part of God's spiritual family, and yet believing a lie and personal pride caused him to rebel against God so that he was cast down from God. And the Bible tells us that he took with him other beings that rebelled. We see other sons of God and then the demons, which leads us to his first appearance in Genesis 3, which he, where he is called the serpent. Okay? We're good? Keep moving. You guys, thinking caps are still on? Thinking, I meant. All right. Now, from here, we see him pop up a few other times under a, a name given to him. Um, his primary title is what? Any guesses? The name that can't be named. I'm just kidding. Voldemort. I'm just kidding. Gosh, it's so stupid. <laughs> The only thing worse than, than talking about this is like actually connecting it to weird stuff and making it like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, his primary name is given is Satan, which again is another untranslated word. Okay, the word Satan um, in the Hebrew, it would be, it, it would be it's, the sa- it's S-A-T-A-N, um, and it's untranslated, and it would be like the Satan is how he's introduced. Because it literally means uh, adversary or the adversary. Okay, so whenever we read Satan in the Bible, again, it's untranslated. It's saying the adversary. It, it isn't a name. It's a, it's a title, meaning the adversary. Because he isn't for anything, but he is against everything. That's this character. He isn't for anything. He's got no plan. He's got no objective other than to destroy God's good because of pride. And we see him pop up four times in the Old Testament. Okay, in your Bible, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, you see him pop up four times. That should be an indication of his his ability and his power, okay? Four times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, as the serpent, in 1 Chronicles 21, uh, we're told that he stood up against Israel and moved David to number the people. That's his second mention. Random verse. That's the verse. That Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number the people. That's the verse. That's the second uh, reference. Third is in Job chapter 1 and 2. Right? We just read that verse. The sons of God are meeting before God. The divine council comes up. God's there. Satan shows up. He asks him a question. And then he goes and, and makes, wreaks havoc on Job's life. And then the fourth appearance in the Old Testament is in the book of Zechariah, where he accuses man of being sinful and unworthy to be in God's presence. He shows up, Joshua the high priest is caught up in a vision before God, and the accuser shows up, and he says he is wearing filthy rags. He shouldn't be in here. And God removes Joshua's filthy rags, closes the, closes, 
clothes him with fresh garments, beautiful garments, and says, I am making him worthy. I am making him holy. So there's four appearances of Satan in the Old Testament. Other than those four, we only see his effects and his moving behind the scenes through corruption and evil. Now, let's move to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see him as the devil. Again, this is another untranslated word, right? The devil is the Greek idea for the word Satan. It's Diablo, (laughs) and it literally means the accuser, the deceiver. Again, not a title, but a name. He is the accuser, and he is the deceiver. So let's summarize. His goal was to be like God because he believed a lie that he could be like God. But listen, there's no one like God. So he's opposed to God and the things of God. And his goal is to deceive through lies and accuse man of being unworthy to know God or to be a part of God's family. This is his primary objective. He's he's against everything. His goal is to be anti-God, anti-everything that's good and perfect that comes from God. And he is his... The way that he does that is through deception, is through accusation uh, against man saying you're unworthy to know God or be a part of God's family. Jesus said that lying and deceiving is his primary goal. Listen to this, John chapter 8, verse 44. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And he says, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Listen, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. We live in a spiritual reality. God is an invisible God, and yet his attributes are clearly seen. We can experience him, we can know him, we can see his fingerprint all throughout our life. There's also an enemy of God. He rebelled because he believed a lie, and now his goal is to deceive the world from knowing God through lies and through spreading death. Have you ever experienced a spiritual attack? Maybe you have and you haven't noticed it. It's often what's animating the pain or suffering or discomfort in your life. You see, we we try to explain or understand or have a reason for everything that we walk through, but perhaps the things you're walking through right now are a part of a bigger story. Maybe the anxiety or the fighting that's going on at home or, or, or the discomfort or the pain or the sickness or the ache that you're experiencing isn't just on the surface like, oh, if I just had this, then it would be solved. But it's actually part of something deeper, a current, a course that's flowing humanity, that's flowing through humanity that is anti-God and anti-his good. And I think for many of us, we have experienced spiritual attack. Some of you, you've been aware of it, right? Maybe you've walked into a setting and you knew instantly from a feeling or something, you're like, I am not supposed to be here. There's something about this that is just not right. I need to get out of here. 
Or maybe you haven't noticed it. Maybe your parents are fighting. Maybe they're going through a divorce. And you're like, what is going on? I thought they loved each other. I thought they were happy. The, the enemy, the accuser, the deceiver, he, he wants to divide. That's one of his primary objectives is to divide, to cause friction, to cause pain, to cause discomfort, to cause uh, uh, people to be destroyed, homes and families and lives to be destroyed. We need to understand that there is a spiritual reality. And whether you recognize it or not, you've probably all experienced it in some way. But we need to recognize how he works in our life today. I'm almost done. I'm going to close with a couple thoughts. We need to recognize how he works in our life today. The first thing, the Satan, the accuser, is not omniscient, nor is he omnipresent. Do you guys know omnipresent? It means everywhere, all the time. God is omnipresent. That means he can be here. <laughs> he can meet with us. That means when you leave, he can go home with you. That means when I leave, he can go home with me. That means that you become the temple of the living God, that he indwells you, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. That there's a reality that, that God is everywhere. And because he's everywhere, we can experience him through everything. We can experience him no matter what we're walking through. He wants to be with you. Satan is not everywhere all the time. He's limited. We saw that in the book of Job. I want to read it again. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Listen to his answer. So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Going to and fro. He's zipping around. He's doing his thing. But what does that tell us? That tells us he's not everywhere. He's limited. And so the Bible makes it clear that although he is sort of the animator and the first rebel, he's not as powerful as we give him credit for. That the Bible makes three enemies of the Christian, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And it's really those three things in that order that are the primary targets of our life. The flesh being our sin nature, our self, getting in the way of what God desires for us. The, the biggest struggle you're going to face is with yourself, right? God's got good plans for you. God has a hope for you. And who gets in the way? Well, you do following your own desires and, and, and ambitions. And then the second is the world. The world is, being, is a course that is opposite or opposed to God. We see that, right? That here's God's good, here's God's truth, here's God's word, and yet we live in a world that's opposed to that, opposite to that. And then the third enemy is the devil, the one who set this rebellious course in motion. And he attacks through lies, Through accusations, he says, you're not good. God doesn't hear your prayers. God doesn't love you. God doesn't have a plan for your life. He attacks through lies. He attacks through temptation. Oh, this is actually what you need. This is what you want. This is what's going to make you happy. Oh, you think it's this? It's not that. He, he attacks through distraction. Oh, no, 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 no. You just need to worry about getting into a good college. That Jesus stuff can wait. Just focus on school. You'll, when you get older, you can worry about God. Distraction, and then by division. 
Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said about you? They hate you. They don't like you. They, so, they say so much stuff about you. And if you experience those things, it's set in motion by the devil. Anything he can do to keep people from encountering God's love, forgiveness, and good. And if he can't keep people from meeting Jesus, he will try to distract you from ever being used by Jesus. All right, I'm going to close with this. Worship team, you can come up here. Or should we just dismiss the groups? Groups? Song? Groups? Okay, cool. All right, then I don't need the keys. I can close without the keys. Amen. Um, <laughs> just pretend the nice path is coming in. Um, oh, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> okay, I want to close with this thought. Because when we talk about this character, we have to realize this is, this is the most important thing that you hear from me tonight. He is a defeated enemy. Satan is a defeated enemy. Jesus first defeated him one-on-one -on -one in the desert. Okay? Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil. Jesus whoops him. Destroys, not, it's no contest. Destroys him. Right? Every time there's a temptation, there's attack, Jesus responds with the word of God. Can I tell you, he's a defeated enemy and you can overcome temptations, division, difficulty, trials that you experience through the same means that Jesus did. How did he defeat him one-on-one? -on -one? The word of God. He's a defeated enemy. Jesus defeated him one-on-one -on -one in the desert. Then Jesus, in his ministry, after he defeated him one-on-one, -on -one, he then began to expel his impact by uh, casting out demons. One of Jesus' ministries is Casting out demons, right? We read about all these demon-possessed people that are come up, and Jesus begins to cast them out. In the biblical narrative, this is important, Jesus is the very first person to cast out a demon. Okay? Jesus first shows up, beats them one-on-one, -on -one, then goes, okay, I'm going to beat your whole team. Bring, bring five. I got one on five. I still got you. That's the idea. Jesus begins to cast out demons, declaring uh, uh, that he is victorious over them. And then he finally defeated them through his death on the cross. Listen to this. This is so powerful. Colossians 2. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Come on, somebody. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross, disarming the principalities and powers, and listen, removing the sting of death. And then Jesus will return and destroy him once and for all. And now, the amazing thing is Jesus then sends us out. He commissions us, and one of the commissions he gives to us is in the same way he commissions people over the spiritual beings. And we have power, listen to me, we have power to remind him that he is a defeated foe when we choose to walk in God's good plans, when we reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when we walk in truth. We remind him that he is a defeated foe, that he is, he's got no power, he's been disarmed, that's the phrase. Think about somebody disarmed. <laughs> they once had power, why? Because they had a weapon. They've been disarmed. No more power. No more sting. No, no more, no more uh, ability to destroy. And we can remind him that he's a defeated foe every time we choose to walk in God's good plan. 
Every time we reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, every time where we choose to walk in truth and not believe lies, we remind him he's defeated, our king is victorious, and he's gonna come back and he is gonna put this to bed in Jesus' name. This is the promise of the gospel. My encouragement for us tonight as we close is that there's an invisible realm that is real. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's an enemy of the Christian. There's an enemy of God. The, the accuser, the deceiver, whose plans is to destroy and corrupt and ruin what God, God's good on the earth. But we have the ability to usher in God's good, to allow people to experience God's good every time we walk in his plans, every time we share the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, and every time we choose to walk in truth. I just want to encourage you that, that, the, that no matter the attacks that you face and experience, we serve a victorious king.